Good morning. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. I hope you're having a great morning so far. We're glad you were able to join us today in worshiping the Lord. Would you all join me and stand and sing together?
Hey, good morning, and welcome to La Jolla Community Church. Whether you're here in the sanctuary with us, out on the patio, or joining us online um, now or sometime later in the week, uh, welcome. We're glad you uh, chose to join us here to worship God on Sunday morning. Um, when you walked in, if you are in the sanctuary, you got uh, a bulletin. Uh, on one side, there's a, a nice little welcome top and then a prayer card. We love to join you in prayer, whether it's something great going on in your life or something you're really struggling with, feeling uh, like it's a heavy weight. We'd love to join you praying for that. We hold these cards in confidence. Um, uh, you can fill it out and drop it in the box or the baskets in the foyer on your way out. Um, and we just really uh, cherish that opportunity to pray for you. And then on the back, there's um, uh, some service opportunities. So the top is, um, uh, you know, just um, trying to convince you that you really want to uh, volunteer with us. Um, <laughs> and then on the bottom, um, you can just write your name, email address, phone number. And then we, we put some um, options here where you could volunteer, some weekly things or not weekly, but uh, regular recurring things. Most of the teams are like um, several people on them, so you rotate. You could do as little as once a month. Even if you want to do once every six weeks, still check that box. Um, and then on the other side are some really fun events. We just had our family fun night uh, last Friday, um, 10 days ago, and it was a blast. And we have uh, uh, another one of those coming up in November, and then um, uh, Christmas um, experience, which is like a... Uh, if you ever went to our Harvest Festival, it'll be a lot like that, um, but with Christmas lights everywhere. So um, uh, yeah, consider volunteering with us. We'd love to have you. And uh, let's continue worshiping. Hey, thank you, Drake. Well, it's October. Can you believe it? It's already October. Oh, my gosh. October 2021. Oh, wait, no. It's 2022. Oh, my gosh. Oh, uh, do you read the newspaper? Do you read your phone? Do you, how do you stay in touch with the news? Uh, the joke at our house is if, if uh, somebody's reading the news, you go, hey, what's in the news? Oh, it's awesome. Everything is working. People are happy. Everybody's getting along. And the joke being this sardonic humor of it's always the same. It's a world of suffering. I mean, my gosh, uh, just when you think it's getting better, some other crazy thing happens. When you think about your own personal history... Uh, do you remember or do you just suppress memories of suffering? Do you, when you were a kid, uh, how did you experience suffering? As a young adult, actually, let me back up. Kid, junior high, how did you experience suffering? Uh, everything is perfect in junior high for all junior high kids. Uh, as it is with high school kids, just awesome. Couldn't be better. Uh, uh, Somebody just said, somebody said to me, you know, I went to my high school reunion, my 50th high school reunion. I said, why would you return to the scene of the crime? What would be the point of that? And I said, isn't that kind of a diplomatic minefield? Oh, yeah. I was talking to people. They did not look like they did 50 years ago. Um, and there's been a lot of suffering since then, apparently. You know, oh. And he wasn't laughing. He was just saying, oh, whoa, what a shock. As an adult, how are you suffering? Uh, midlife. Later in life, uh, as Jim Morrison said, nobody gets out alive. I mean, you can't go through this world and not experience some level of suffering. And we don't want it for ourselves. We don't want it for our kids. Every parent is running around under every tree that their kid is climbing in, you know, saying, I, I don't want them to fall down and suffer. And yet suffering they will experience. And so uh, the big question uh, is, where is God in the midst of suffering? Uh, one of the things we've learned is that 
we, we learn and we grow by asking the right questions. And I don't mean perfect questions. You've heard it said your whole life, there's no such thing as a dumb question. Uh, there are dumb answers, but no dumb questions. It's good to ask questions. And so what we like to do here is to create conversations. Uh, not to exploit people or manipulate them into some foregone conclusion, but to simply open up a conversation. How are you? Who are you? What does life mean to you? Uh, it's really great to have a great conversation, isn't it? Not a great interrogation, there's no such thing. Not a great deposition. If you've ever been deposed, that's no fun. Unless you're not the person having anything to do with the issue, but you're, you're being called to depose to establish some information that somebody needs. Conversations, they open up worlds in us, they open up worlds between us, they open up worlds around us. And so one of the things that we do is take on the big questions. In the sense we exist to take on the big questions. The questions that people would say, too complicated, too emotional, too, too conflictual, we avoid those questions if we can. But we say no, uh, kind of like a first responder. If the building's on fire, we want to run in. If something is happening that needs attention and care, we want to be there. Oh my gosh, there's a hurricane in Florida. Well, how, can we go? Not to watch it or, or to have a thrill, but to say, how can we be present somehow, some way, to help people who will need somebody to be present in a difficult situation? So uh, asking questions is, is at the core of who we are as, a, as, a, as the people of God, as a community of God, a church. So we're asking the question today, you know, where is God in the midst of suffering? Uh, <clears throat> and, and as I said about reading the news and wanting to change it into good news, I, I, I get compassion fatigue. Every once in a while, I, guess I just get worn out. I don't care what Putin said. I don't want to hear about it. I don't care what anybody in Washington, D.C. is arguing about. Uh, I love it when I'm, I'm out of town and I'm out of touch. And I notice that the same news that I left is still there when I get back. It's like, did nothing change? They swapped out some, they swapped out some names and some countries and some situations. It's the same world. And so I get fatigued. Do you get compassion fatigue? Uh, compassion fatigue is not an excuse not to care. But it is a symptom of being overwhelmed by the suffering in the world. When people around you suffer, guess what? You suffer, right? Who are the most invisible and, and forgotten people when somebody's having a chronic, life-changing, life-threatening, and maybe life-ending illness? It's the caregiver. The caregiver is worn out, exhausted, and nobody seems to think that they need the care that was given to the person who was actually doing the main suffering. But suffering has a ripple effect that it touches everybody. So where is God in the midst of our suffering? Big, heavy question. Uh, and, and it doesn't work well to, to give trite answers. That's what I said. There's no bad questions, but there's some funky answers. Well, he's in a better place now. Like, this is a place where it would be better, you know. Uh, well, you know, you'll grow through that. You know, you'll, it's pretty better for you. It, it, and uh, true, but often it's in the, at the wrong time in the wrong way. But also, it's an, it's an anodyne. An anodyne is a really bad way of trying to deal with something. It's a Band-Aid on something that's more serious than a Band-Aid can help. So we don't want to have anodyne responses to big, giant, global, universal human life uh, questions. And so the fatigue then becomes a symptom of, wow, you can't get away from it, and you can't do much about it. So I do get fatigued, and I, I know you do too. A lot of people just stop caring and check out. Reading the news is way down. Most people don't want to read the news, so they don't. On their phone, on a, on a tablet, uh, in a newspaper. And if they watch the news, they demand that it be entertaining. All the clever repartee between newscasters, and I'm, if you're a newscaster, I don't mean to offend you, um, but nice hair and I love the outfit. You know? And so at the end of the news, it's styling by so-and-so. Like, who gives a rip about the styling? I want to know what the heck is going on in the world. And having known some newscasters, I realize it's a very difficult job because they really care about the news. Uh, if you've talked to Kimberly Hunt one-on-one -on -one and you say, Kimberly, uh, what is it like for you? She goes, oh my gosh, it breaks my heart when I read these things. I want to somehow convey an urgency, but I realize I have to package it in a way that will get eyeballs. A young woman um, uh, was here, won an Emmy here in San Diego. She's now in Chicago. You know, wow, doesn't it tear you up doing this? She goes, well, more, mainly it tears me up to be up in the middle of the night getting ready for the next day. But yes, because she has this big heart and she just cares. She cares about rescue animals, you know, so the suffering wears her out. And they want to present it in a way that would be compelling and people would say, oh, I care about that too. But we have to then dress it up and make it 
entertainment. Why? Because we can't handle it. And then we get really, really angry uh, that it won't go away, and so we become apathetic. Apathos, against feeling. And we get hardened. Somebody else's problem, not my problem. If you ski this winter into the backcountry ranger station out of Tuolumne Meadows and you're in a world of hurt because something went, went awry in your planning and you're ski, trying to do a ski tour, maybe you're trying to cross the high Sierra, you come into that, that cute cabin now covered in snow, you see that gnarly looking ranger, he or she will say to you, they'll point to a little sign above the door and it says, poor planning on your part does not require an emergency on mine. That's nothing but compassion right there, that big compassion in the middle of the winter in the backcountry. And what are they trying to say? I just can't care about everybody who is that crazy to come out here and not plan appropriately. And so what we do is we rationalize. We say, oh my gosh, all that suffering is bad decisions, bad choices. Why do I have to come in and clean up their mess? But I keep looking at the world's problems just like I keep looking at my own because I don't want to lose my soul through apathy. And this is where the anger comes in. There's all those silly jokes, you know, you create this crazy situation and it's funny, and then you say, and that's when the fight started. So where is God in the midst of suffering? How can a loving God allow suffering? You know this in your heart of hearts if you stood at the bedside of somebody in horrible suffering and there's nothing you can do. Where is God in the midst of this? And when the person looks at you and says, hey, where is God in the midst of this? Thanks for coming to see me and pray for me. But where is God in the midst of this? Look at those kids that are crying. Look at these people who will be without a father or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so suffering in the world is the primary reason people give for not believing in God. Most people don't say, you know, my big issue is the resurrection. Obviously, that's an issue. My biggest issue isn't that God could come into the world. If he's God, why couldn't he do anything? So all those questions, those theological questions are, are important, but they're not the main one. The main one is the primary visceral one, ragged edge, bleeding, you know, um, hearts and minds and bodies question. Where is God? And if there is a God, why does he allow this to happen? Would you agree that that's the big question? That when you finally get into it with somebody talking about Jesus and they say, okay, that's great, now you're awesome, fantastic, I love your attitude, but Why? Why, why, why? And then I ask the question, because we ask questions, not to be clever, uh, to put people down or to stop the conversation, but we ask questions because we want to understand what a person's feeling, where this question is coming from. Suffering in the world, yeah. But is God the cause of the suffering or is God the cure? Is God the cause of our suffering, or is, in fact, God the cure? That kind of shapes and refines the question, doesn't it? Because if we try to deny what people are experiencing, it's a no-go. It's a non-starter. I can't argue with what you're feeling and how you're seeing it. But let me perhaps try to reframe it, not to deny your feelings or to change your mind about things, but just to reframe it so maybe instead of us having this face-to-face, I'm supposed to explain all, your, all the things you want to know, we stand shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder and look at the world together and say, hey, what do we see? Is God the cause of all this? Or is perhaps, in a way that we can't imagine, but we'd like to believe, God is a cure for this? God cares about this. Does God care is a big question, right? So let's look at a passage of Scripture. We look at Scripture not because it's magic words in an old book, because it's, we believe, a message from God to us, the God who cares about us, saying, let me tell you who I am. Let me tell you what I'm about. Let me tell you where this world is going. So you can decide if you want to be a part of it. Because you're going to be involved in it nonetheless. Even if you decide against me, it's going to be the world you live in. And so we see this in a letter called 2 Corinthians. Corinth, obviously, a city in Greece. And Paul is writing, and Paul, an apostle, formerly a rabbi, still a, follower, still a, a, a Jew, uh, now a follower of Jesus, who he believes is the fulfillment of God's promise to send a Messiah. Now Paul is suffering a lot on behalf of people in Corinth, and he's also suffering because of people in Corinth. It's a twofer. 
And so in some ways, some people in Corinth are helping him as he's out there helping other people, and he's grateful for those people. But there's some people in Corinth who are making life unnecessarily miserable for him. And he, he's suffering enough that he could say, forget you and the horse you rode in on. I've had enough of this. I don't need this anymore. Uh, he could support himself. We think Paul came from an affluent family or we wouldn't be going all over the world. He wouldn't be a Roman citizen and a full-blooded um, uh, Jew. Uh, he wouldn't have access uh, to the world like he had it. If he didn't come from an affluent, affluent and established family, he probably didn't need to do this. And in fact, when he needed money, he would make tents, which is a whole other story, but it, it's, it sounds a lot more important than it sounds. I mean, it is more important than it sounds to us. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy is his protege. To the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, the region, that little end of, of the peninsula, uh, the Achaia, that region. So he's talking to those people in that city, and he knows this letter is going to go out to other people beyond Corinth. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion. What? <laughs> the Father of compassion? Wow. Not the Father who really does care, but he's too busy to be involved. Send you his regards. He's no, no, the Father of compassion. Compassion with suffering. The passion of the Christ. We think of it as an erotic eros thing, you know, passion is a love between a man and a woman. Passion means the willingness to suffer. That's why it's attached to marriage. And so, um, and dating. Uh, and parenthood. And anything that you care about it requires passion. Yeah, like I get all excited, kinda. That, that I just love it, I could do it if, you, even if I didn't get paid? Sorta. Well, what do you mean, kinda, sorta? Well, passion. Are you willing to suffer for this? When your son is looking at a 70-foot wave or a 40-foot wave, uh, he has passion for it. No one could crush him like a Dixie cup, right? And if he said, why do you do that? He goes, I don't know, I just love it. I'm smart how I do it, but I just love it. I'm willing to take the risk. Why are you getting married? I'm willing to take the risk. Why are you going to have kids? I'm willing to take the risk. God, why do you care? I was willing to take the risk. And the God of all comfort. It's not just an attitude he has toward us, it's a behavior he has toward us. He comforts us. Uh, if I was sitting right now in a place that had just been swamped by Hurricane Ian, would I want compassion or would I want it accompanied by comfort? That's the question. I got the postcard, thank you for your compassion. Ah, I also got the food, the boat, the medical care. The new clothes and the, and the comfort, wow, awesome, thank you. And it wasn't cruddy stuff, it was really nice. It was great food, it was great clothing, um, wow. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we also can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Oh my gosh, it's not us going, could somebody be comfort, comforting people on here? God, where are you? What are you doing? No, God's saying, I am initiating this so that you can also learn how to do it, like me. Do what I do, and it'll be really good for the rest of the world. I want you to have my compassion in your heart. I want you to show my comfort through your hands and feet, your words, your gestures, your behavior. He goes on to say, for just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, he's not saying, you know, I need to be nailed to a cross to justify being a follower of Christ, though he will be executed by Nero, probably 20 years after this happened. The suffering of Christ, the Christ who is willing to care and show compassion and bring comfort, that suffering. It's inconvenient to love. And he's saying, I'm willing to share in that, just like Christ did. It's not some martyr complex. It's not some weird kind of a thing that I'm trying to do to show how spiritual I am. When I see people in some of these parades, I mean, in, in countries that are, it's like a Christo-pagan thing. It's part Christian, I want, to, I want to suffer like Christ. It's paganism. They walk down the street and they're beating themselves. I'm thinking, stop beating yourself. Go help the kid in the, in the slum, in the ghetto, adjacent to the main street you're hiking down, and that will be a beating in, in and of itself. 
If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. Now, now he's talking about across the body of water in what we know as Turkey. They've been pushing out the frontier of, of the good news. And they're getting, they're getting literally be, beaten up for it. Because when they come into a city like Ephesus, whose economy is partly built on uh, silversmiths and goldsmiths that make effigies of the God, and they start undermining that God by saying, that's the false God, Jesus is the right God. We don't have any effigies of Jesus. And so you're screwing up our economy. And we're going to beat the tar out of you until you understand that that's not acceptable. And we, we have the power not only to do it personally, we'll get the authority to do it as well. It will make everybody who believes in what you're saying um, also part of our response. How do you like that? Then when it got bigger beyond Asia and it came back into Rome itself, they said, you know, Caesar is the son of God. Caesar is the savior. Caesar is the source of the good news. And we're going to persecute you until you get that straight. Because anybody who doesn't believe what I just said about Caesar is, in our words, an atheist. No, no, we believe in the God of all comfort and compassion. Jesus, God in the flesh. No, that's an atheistic comment. We don't accept that. Are you willing to suffer for that? This is what Paul's saying. We're under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Am I going to make it, and do I want to make it? First thought, I might die. Second thought, that might not be that bad. It might be better than what I'm going through. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves. Because our capacity for pain is so limited. At least mine is. I mean, I love the fact that if you've ever had any kind of serious injury, they ask you, hey, on a scale of 1 to 10, every woman goes, I don't know, it's a 2, 2 to 3. Every guy's like 400, 500, I don't know, something in there in that range. 10, 10 to the 10th, I think, is probably more. And then, of course, certain, the, you don't see them. The nurses and doctors are like, Put a Band-Aid on it, you know. Kind of thing. It happens so that we wouldn't rely on ourselves because we're so limited. But on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril. And He will deliver us again. On Him we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Now here's where the, the skeptic would say, well, what's the point of this? If God is so great, why does He have to keep delivering you? Why don't I just get rid of the, the source of the, the pain, the suffering? What's the point? Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Now, this is our boast. It's like, what? <laughs> this is something you're happy about? You're going to boast about it? It's a big celebration. You can't wait to tell you this. You're going to love this. This is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. Suffering is apparently not an excuse for ditching a right relationship with a living God that's sincere. Sincere means literally it's without cracks. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. Somehow God's grace speaks to this universal human problem of suffering at its source and its possible cure. So where is God when it hurts? Well, apparently He is with us and He is for us. Small comfort if you're in the midst of some horrific thing and the pain is so intense emotionally or physically that this is just like blah, 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 blah. This is why these kinds of conversations for a person in intense pain, psychic pain, physical pain, is, is, is really not, the timing isn't right. All they need is lots of love, lots of care, uh, no rebuttal. Hey, man, no. 
They just need love. We need just to pour on the love when people are in pain, right? Not to indulge them, but to carry them through to the place where they can finally get stabilized enough to say, what was that all about? It's hard to talk about pain when people are in the, in the depth of it. And that's why we want to raise these questions when people are in a place of more clarity, when they can at least think uh, and, and process the pain they have experienced, the pain they are seeing, the pain and, and the suffering they know is probably ahead in life. If he loves us, great. I love that, that God loves us. But why does he allow us to suffer? We can't see how it makes sense. In fact, we refuse to try to make sense of it. It's just not right. I shouldn't have to make sense of this. I shouldn't have to justify that there's a loving God and I'm suffering. And that if he's so great and powerful, he could do something about it. Why isn't he? If he doesn't, well, forget him. What kind of monster is that who could do something but won't? And so really, again, to right-size our perspective, suffering reveals a flawed world. Does it follow that it reveals a flawed God? Maybe, maybe not. But again, until we stand shoulder to shoulder and look at the Word of God and look at the history of God, can we start to make some sense of it? Otherwise, we're like every economist that walks the planet. Short-term answers for long-term solutions. Short-term solutions for long-time problems. If, you, if you're an economist and you think I can fix it today or this week or this quarter, you're lying to yourself and everybody else. Because the systems, the structures that influence massive economic movements are complex. And whatever we start to do and, 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 and address in the problem is going to be effective. It just won't be in this election cycle, maybe. It's going to take a long time. Why? Because you can't all of a sudden tell everybody what to do differently. You've got to coax them and woo them and, and, and demonstrate for them this is a better way and on anything in life, right? You've got to convince people there is a better way. Yeah, but here's, here I am and I'm stuck. Yes, yes, but you can get unstuck. I want to be unstuck now and tomorrow and next weekend. No, you're going to be stuck for a while. But we're going to get you unstuck. While you're stuck, we'll be getting you unstuck. And one day you'll wake up and say, oh my gosh, what happened? What, what changed? You, you've changed. Are you with me on this? We are so, I am so desirous of short-term quick fixes. I just want somebody to fix it. Can somebody just please fix it? And God says, <laughs> Yeah, we are. Let's go. You go, what do you have to do about fixing it? And he wants to tell us that. But we think of God as like the God of mythology who torments people. But no, it's a hideous effect of sin in the world that we're dealing with. Not capricious gods that are playing games with humans. Screwing up human situations when they start to look too good. We have a God who wants us to thrive and grow. He created a good world and he wants it to be better. But we, well, we deny that we are complicit in any kind of source of suffering. We project on others the cause and the source of our suffering. We blame others. We rationalize the fact that we caused suffering. Well, I had to because it was inevitable, couldn't be helped. They deserved it. Uh, we minimize our sin, but we live in a world that has uh, the hideous and grotesque effects of something we call sin. Uh, I love the way, you know, in Spanish, sin means without. Uh, this is the problem. We are without so many things that we need. Why? Because we've denied the living God and said we can do better. We can improve on this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is what Paul wrote to the Romans. They said we're so awesome, we're Romans. Can't get better than this. Well, except for the, <laughs> the fact that we, we're, we have droughts and famines and mean people and people ripping us off at the highest levels of government. Besides that though, it's awesome. Well, they take our sons, and they send them off to faraway places, and they die. It's great. Well, except for, and it goes like that, right? Well, why is it? Well, it's for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This Wednesday, uh, Yom Kippur, Yom, Day, Kippur, Atonement. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And it's a fantastic, fantastic moment to stop and say, I have sinned. In fact, Paul goes on in, in chapter 6 of Romans to say, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yom Kippur, what an awesome and wonderful moment to stop and say, I have sinned, I require atonement. 
the heartbreak of Yom Kippur is that where does the atonement come from? Initially, it came from the temple where things were sacrificed under the instructions of God saying, look, this is how you have to understand the severity of sin and what it does to you. The temple was destroyed. I said this last week. The temple was destroyed in AD 70. All of, all of Jerusalem was turned into a parking lot in AD 135. And by the way, if you're a Jew, you can't come back anytime soon. And so the church, uh, the, the, you know, the, the movement, Judaism, was dispersed. And now you're celebrating Yom Kippur. How do I atone? Probably one of the smartest guides I've ever met in Israel, uh, after many trips there, uh, this guy could, could be a pastor and you wouldn't, know, you wouldn't know he was an Orthodox Jew. He was so articulate about the Bible, New Testament. He was so articulate about Christian theology. And I said, you know, you're amazing. You're amazing. I just have one question for you. This is after days of talking. We really got along well. I love this guy. We were just having a great time. I said, so let me ask you this question. What about atonement? Because everything you've said, because I asked, why are you, why don't you believe in Jesus? You're so articulate about Jesus. You could be a full, you know, blooded Jew and embrace Jesus as your Messiah. Why not? And he has some reasons. Basically, you know, my tradition, et cetera. I said, but what about atonement? This is the question that people will be asking themselves on Wednesday. Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, right? We talked about this last weekend. The new year behind us now, by a week. Uh, came on, uh, started last Sunday night. One of the heaviest days of participation in a synagogue. Yom Kippur, the big day. Packed in uh, for Yom Kippur. Where is the atonement? And this is not uh, being sarcastic. I'm just saying, ask a, ask a Jew, not to put him on the spot, say, hey, given the atonement stuff. And this was, an, I saw, I, I see this you know, in, in news alerts, hey, it's Yom Kippur, and they'll interview people. And what will they say? Ah, my atonement. I served soup in a soup in a, in a in a homeless soup kitchen, and that takes away your sin. You did it one day in the year. Yeah, and I gave some money for this. How small is your sin? I'd have to ser- serve soup twenty four hours a day for ten billion years to make a dent in my sin. What makes you think you can atone by a wonderful but gratuitous act of service? We have so minimized sin that we've minimized atonement. But we still feel the massive burden of our sin. There's no peace, there's no resolution, there's no relief. And all have sinned, and all bear the the consequences of that. And so doesn't Jesus' death create a better world? Well, yeah, it does. That's the good news. Okay, why is it taking so long? It happened 2,000 years ago. It doesn't look like a lot is different. Well, there's 3 billion believers in Jesus now. And, and a lot of things are better in the world that we wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, when you go to the hospital, you can thank Jesus for the hospital. Now, those hospitals, those orphanages, those social institutions were not started by atheists or agnostics. They were started by followers of Jesus everywhere. Let me flip it. You go on that beautiful bike ride through Burgundy, thank God for all those, those vineyards. All of them started by guys in monasteries. Literally every one of them, the best places were monasteries. The atheists took over the monasteries, kicked those guys out because they liked the wine, but they forgot that the guys making the wine in the monasteries were also ministering to the people's needs. And that's why they turned a swamp, Burgundy is a swamp, they turned it into a spectacular place to ride your bike and drink wine. Or watch people drink wine, whatever your preference is. So why is it taking so long? Well, the Apostle Peter said it this way. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So as much as I want it to be resolved, I want Jesus to come back tonight. I'd love Jesus to come back right now, wouldn't you? That, that word Maranatha, uh, Aramaic word, come Lord, you know, come, come Lord, Mara, you know, Anatha, Maranatha, come Lord now. We pray that, come Lord, come, come Lord. We don't know when, come Lord. In the meantime, Lord, what do you want to do in me and through me? And the question would be, are you willing to be patient for people to be saved? 
Would you, are you willing to go through the, 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 the frustrations of being saved that's nothing but joyful and great, but meanwhile you'd like to see it all resolved according to the good news? Are you willing to go through the, the delayed, the now but not yet fulfillment of that so that other people could be saved? Are you willing to do that? And most people, when you press them, will say, well, yeah, of course I want my family members, my friends. I don't want anybody to be not experiencing the salvation of God. All right, so then hang in there. But people are mocking me. They're going, hey, your God's a little slow. Is he in the bathroom? Is he predisposed? And, you know, no, he's patient. Why? Oh, he's a God of compassion and all comfort. And so for now, Paul writes to the Corinthians, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I just know in part. Then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. So if this is the case, and indeed it is, what do we do in the meantime? Well, we rely on God's grace and truth. Not luck, not denial, not wishful thinking, but grace and truth. How is that going for you? What does grace mean to you? What does truth mean to you? Well, I believe in Jesus. Right, right. So let's fill in some of the details that go along with that. What, is, what does his grace look like? What does his truth compel in us? Well, grace is God's promise to never leave us or forsake us, and that's the truth. He has a plan, and that's the truth. He's the only one who can carry out the plan, and that's the truth. And he wants us included in the plan, and that's the truth. And that's his grace. He cares for us, but he doesn't coddle us. If you're going through a difficult time right now, stop whining and moaning and say, okay, whether it's my fault or somebody else's or or stuff just happens, where does God want to meet me in the midst of this situation? Yes, he'll bring compassion and comfort. He will not coddle you. He doesn't allow you to be mean to the nurses, angry with your family, taking it out on everybody you have access to. Coddling is a dysfunctional way of caring. It's an indulgent, enabling way of allowing a person to do stupid things because we feel sorry for them. If you are being abused by a boyfriend or a husband, get rid of the bum. I mean it, get rid of them. Kick them out, call the police. Yeah, but I love them. They need compassion. Yes, they do, but they will never get it or accept it until they're sequestered and put in a place where they can think about it. Do not ever enable a bully. Yeah, but they're mean and they're scary. You don't have to pretend you're going to fight them. They just want you to do that. You can't pretend to be afraid of them or really be afraid of them. They want that. What you need to do is find a way to confront them. The most harrowing neighborhood, it's called Harrowgate, actually. It's in Pennsylvania. 500, uh, almost 600 murders last year. They're going to beat that record this year. We're talking about a half-mile neighborhood. Half-mile neighborhood in Pennsylvania. The people every day are calling out, help! It's like 30% black Uh, 25% Hispanic, 16% white. They're all together saying, help. A bunch of, and they describe themselves as old ladies, took it on themselves to clear the park of all the users. 30 to 40 more users every day showing up for fentanyl. They have a t-shirt that says, we are not user-friendly. They harass the police. Where are you? What are you going to do? And the the police go, harass all you want because we need your help. Harass us because it's motivating us. They're not putting up with it. They're confronting evil. We don't coddle evil. We don't coddle people who are suffering. We say, I care for you. Coddling means we, we, we let them be their worst self. Coddling doesn't mean you can't encourage people to talk about their pain, to express their grief and sorrow, and let them cry. And co- no. Always, always, always comfort people. But at some point, people can fall into a, a, a place where they want to be coddled. And I've always been so impressed with parents who have uh, kids with disabilities or special needs, the way that they caringly, kindly confront their behavior and discipline them. Because the rest of us are like, oh yeah, whatever you need. I mean, sure, I don't want you to feel bad. You already feel bad. The parents are like, what are you doing? I want to love this child, so I'm going to discipline this child. You go, oh, it's way beyond my capacity to understand how to do that. But God wants to do that in us and for us. Grace is not a hall passing from suffering, but suffering is a condition of living in this fallen world. So God redeems our suffering and the meaninglessness that comes with suffering. Why? By reframing our perspective. Paul writes to the Romans, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It does not justify suffering. It doesn't say get over it. Get on with it. It says, in the midst of it, God is with you and for you. And even in this horrible situation that nobody wanted to trade places with you to be in, God is going to minister his grace to you. Go, oh my gosh, what a way to reframe it. And so all of a sudden we see that suffering requires discipline. What? Discipline? Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. You don't understand. I need sympathy and less suffering, not discipline. Oh, no, no. You definitely need sympathy. You definitely need and deserve less suffering, but in the meantime you need discipline. Yeah, but I've got diabetes and I'm 10 years old. Right. It's horrible. Nobody wished it on you. Here's what we do. Here's how we handle it and we're going to move on. And you know what 10-year-olds do? They do. 10-year-olds blow every adult's mind the way they say, all right, all right, I'm on. Game on. And it makes parents and all their friends cry. Because you go, how does that kid have the capacity to do this? They're learning discipline. They're learning that I get to make decisions about how I'm going to live my life. Often people get old enough, like high school, college, adulthood, and say, oh, I can't, I can't, I just can't. What do you mean you can't? I can't make any decisions. I can't make any commitments. I just have to suffer. You go, yes, you can, and you could, but you won't. You shouldn't. Here's why. See, disciplined grace makes suffering bearable. Disciplined grace describes the skills and habits that shape us as we navigate suffering. Discipline involves turning to God, trusting in God's grace, finding comfort and hope. And so our calling in life is learning these skills and these capacities to not think suffering is great, but to deal with it and help others deal with it. We find that God's grace even redeems our suffering. Something good comes out of it. And we can persevere in Christ, who is our Savior and our Lord. And because we persevere, we inspire other people. Have you guys ever seen any videos of this guy, Nick Vitovich, I think his name is? Nick Vitovich, if he was standing on this table, he'd be this tall. And he's got no appendages. And you think, I have nothing but sadness and sympathy and empathy for this person until he opens his mouth. And at the end of his talk, you go, I want to be Nick Vitovich. Nick Vitovich would take over this room. And he wouldn't do it out of, with volume or work in your emotions. He'd take it over by saying, isn't, isn't it a great thing that we have a God who cares for us? Isn't it awesome how God gives us compassion and comfort and allows us to rise to our highest and best? You're going, is this guy serious? Yes, he's serious. Because he's serious about the God is the only one who can take care of the atoning sacrifice that the world requires and the only one who can speak to the world's suffering. And this guy's convinced, and he's convincing. You, you, you hear him speak, and you think, what a wimp I am. Why am I even complaining and whining and moaning about my bad day? And so we don't just go through life, we grow through life by accepting God's grace to persevere. Does that mean we can't cry anymore? No. It means you're free to cry. Tears are a gift from God. It doesn't mean I can't complain I'm having a bad day. No, of course you can complain I'm having a bad day. Everybody has a bad day. It just means that in the midst of that, you're saying, Lord, what is it you want to do in me? Well, I'm here anyway. What do you want to do in me and through me? And he comforts us through the natural world, creation. You go out and you see beautiful things, you go, I feel restored. You know that there's a river that runs through the new heaven and the new earth? Think about it. You saw the movie, A River Runs Through It? That was the whole theme. If you're in a beautiful place fly fishing, that's a taste of heaven. You're surfing a perfect wave. You're having a, a great day. You're creating beautiful art. You're shopping. I don't know what it is that restores you. Whenever you're in the midst of that place, you're going, this is an awesome day. This is a taste of heaven. When people ask me, well, will my dog be in heaven? Do dogs go to heaven? I would say, well, I don't know if dogs go to heaven. That's a, it's a kind of an odd question, really, because it's a theological question that doesn't have any context. But I can tell you this, everything you love will be in heaven. Everything you really love and authentically love will be in heaven. So in that sense, I guess, 
I hate to say it, Skippy's going to be in heaven and I have to deal with it. I still haven't gotten over the fact that he preferred Janet and the girls to me. They had to be gone for days before Skippy would go, hey man, you and me, we're bros. Like, yeah, a little late, I'd say. After that, no, I was a non-entity in the house whenever Skippy was there, except for we were like best bros, BFFs forever, you know, kind of best friends forever, when, when Janet and the girls were gone. But what you love will be in heaven, and what you love in this world is a taste of heaven. So he comforts us through creation. Certainly he comforts us through Christ and the Holy Spirit, through his word. Certainly he comforts us through the community. If you're not in community, if you're not letting people get close enough, you are denying yourself comfort and compassion. Why? Because people don't care. No, because you're not letting them get close. Don't ever do that thing to yourself where you say, I haven't been in church in, in, in uh, six months and nobody's called me. Maybe they're being respectful that you didn't want to go to the church and they don't want to put you on the spot by going, hey, why aren't you coming to church? They didn't want to shame you or make you feel uncomfortable. So they're just being respectful. How about you call them up and say, hey, I, I'm, I haven't been around. I know. Are you okay? Oh, you opened up a door. Amazing. We want to be comforted. We don't want to comfort other people, unfortunately. But community allows that to happen. And anyway, I want to wrap this up by saying this. In Christ, I'm learning to see a larger truth looming over my suffering. And it's not truth as a concept. It's Jesus, a person. When I look at my suffering, I look up and I realize Jesus, whose hands are pierced, inside is pierced, his feet are pierced, who wore a crown of thorns, says, there's a larger reality here. No, suffering is not good, but I can make good things come out of suffering. I see his outstretched, nail-scarred hands reminding me that he knows my suffering. I see his beckoning arms enfolding me with love and security in the midst of my suffering, whatever kind of suffering it is. Oh, Lord, where am I going to get the money to pay the rent? What's going to happen to my kid? What if the doctor's report is, is bad? You know, what if there's no cure? What if, what if I can't afford insurance? What, you know, I don't know. What if I have everything I've always wanted and I'm still miserable? I don't know. All those things. He knows my suffering. He's giving me security in the midst of my suffering. And I see his welcoming invitation. I hear his welcoming invitation in Scripture. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavily, heavy laden. All of you who have compassion fatigue or suffering fatigue. And his grace helps me see that the indignities of suffering will eventually pass away. I will have a fully restored body and mind. So will you. And amidst my pain and despair, my anger and anxiety, his grace and peace helps me endure, persevere. Again, not just to go through life, but to grow through life. I see, I see that something is being formed in me by faith in Christ, preparing me for the new creation. And you know what that is? That something is me. I'm being prepared for the new creation. The real me, the true me, the righteous me, alive in Christ, made possible only by Christ. Like a husk, this life will fall away to reveal the beauty of the Lord in us. And we're going to say, whoa, how did that happen? I didn't see that coming. I knew it was going to come. I just didn't see how you got there. We are His. And in Jesus' name, we can receive God's comfort. Are you going to receive it by faith? Perhaps you've been putting Him at arm's length forever. I'm too intellectual to believe this stuff. Get over yourself. You haven't begun to even plumb the answers to your deepest questions. Open your hands and your heart and your mind to Him. If you're sitting here today and you've never accepted Christ, why not? What's the downside? If it's not true, you move on. If it's true, you say, I want to move in. I don't want this to go away. I want this forever. If you feel like you've so shamed the Lord and so fallen uh, in your capacity to honor and glorify Him, get over yourself. It's about His grace, not about your perfection. You don't have any perfection. What you have is a purpose, and that is to know His perfection in you so that you can one day be complete, perfect in Christ. And maybe it's you saying, you know, all those losers, I don't know about them. I have everything is working for me. Wow, what day is it? Gee, I wonder what tomorrow's going to be like. <laughs> wow, okay. How's, how is it controlling everything in your life and all the people around you in the world? How's that working for you? So far, so good, man. Okay, okay. Just, great. Just let me know when I can help. So pray for strength and endurance to bring comfort to those who suffer, who need compassion, who need perseverance, perseverance, who need a comfortable place to get over themselves. 
and finally trust somebody enough to say, okay, I've, I've been giving you a lot of baloney about how together I am. Just embarrassing to admit that I don't know how to get what I need. But I understand this Jesus stuff might be the doorway I need to walk through. That's the perseverance and hope that comes through faith in Christ. It is a gift from God to us. And so this is what we do when we, when we, when we um, receive Holy Communion. <clears throat> when you go to this table, and the people who are going to serve, if they would come up right now, you're going to walk up to this table and you're going to hear words like this. This is Christ's body given for you. This is Christ's blood shed for you. And that's simply the confirmation of the gift that God is offering you. And if, and, and if you come in Jesus' name, it's for you. If you come in his name, it's for you. Don't let anything hold you back from coming in his name to receive Holy Communion. It's a, it's, it's a significant step. Don't take it lightly. It's not a cultural thing. It's a Christ thing. If you're opening your heart to Christ for the first time or yet again, this is for you. And so on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, he, he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took a cup of wine, he said, this is the, the, the cup of the new covenant in my blood, do this in remembrance of me. And so we keep doing it. There's no magic in the cup or the bread, but in some way that we can't quite understand, he's present in it. And he's present in us. And because he's present in us, we have the compassion and comfort of God in us that we can then offer to other people in his name. So Lord Jesus, I thank you for this astounding message of your comfort and compassion from Paul. Throughout the Old and New Testament, Lord, how you, you've been telling us this, and, and, and this is a theme. Your love and truth and justice all comes wrapped in compassion and comfort. And we thank you, Lord, for fulfilling that in Jesus. And now in his name, as we receive him and learn to walk with him, fulfilling it also in us. So I thank you, Lord, for that invitation that we can come to you. We can be part of a community that you're the center and you're the head of. We can be part of something that transcends cultures and all the human categories we could possibly impose on it. So thank you and praise you for all this. In Jesus' high and holy name, amen. Let's continue worshiping the Lord. There'll be music. Come receive communion. After the service, I will tell you what you can do too.
pray for you for anything, or if you have a concern for anything that we can pray about with you, just go right out around the corner to that lovely garden in the front. It's a prayer garden. And there'll be somebody there who will say, well, how can I pray with you? How can I pray for you? What is it that is on your heart that, that I can pray with you about? And then uh, we have a fantastic uh, mini brunch. I get something to eat. And then at 11, uh, we're going to continue this uh, series called the Alpha um, Course. And it's, uh, it's this really wonderful project out of uh, London. 20 million plus people have watched these alpha videos uh, and they're brief videos. And then we just talk a little bit about, okay, what did you get out of that? Really neat. Um, so if, you're, if you don't know anything about Jesus, that's a good start. If you know everything about Jesus, that's a really good place to land as well. So we welcome you to come back at 11 o'clock after you get something to eat. 
If there's anything else we can do to help you take that first step or that next step in your faith, we want to do that. So God bless you. And so now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift up his face upon you, giving you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.